0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. For over a thousand years, cultures as different as India and England have something in common, a caste system. You're born into a certain level of society, and you'll never rise above or be below that level for your entire life. But America was supposed to be different. We've been taught that with brains, moxie, and hard work, we can do or be anything that we want to be. There are no invisible barriers. There are no castes in the United States. Isabel Wilkerson has punched a huge hole in one of the country's biggest myths with her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. It looks at race and racism through the lens of the American hierarchy. It says our caste system has been in place since day one and continues to keep certain people at the top and others at the bottom. As Wilkerson says in the book, America is an old house. You and I may not have built that house, but it's where we live and we need to fix it up. Isabel Wilkerson, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Reset.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, welcome back to Chicago. I know it's by phone, but <laughs> it's, it's great to have you here. Uh, Bureau Chief for the New York Times. So, but where did you come up with the basic premise to look at the caste system uh, for this book?
1: Well, you know, it started with The Warmth of Other Suns. It is a story of the you know, out migration of six million African Americans from the Jim Crow South to other parts of the country, most notably Chicago. And in the process of writing that, I came to uh, recognize that this term that anthropologists had used to describe the uh, era of Jim Crow, the world that they were leaving, that the word caste was in some ways the more appropriate and more accurate term to describe the world that they were forced to flee, you know, the world where it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together in Birmingham, for example. Mm-hmm. So it became a way of understanding the, uh, the hierarchy that they were living under, the totalitarian regime, you might say. It was a way of letting us understand a part of our country's history that doesn't make sense in some ways until you find the right language for it. And that's how I came to the idea of caste.
0: Yeah, that's uh, to so look beyond that. That's, that's, I mean that's really what it is it's about language because as you point out in the book caste is, is really the infrastructure of division.
1: It is it's the it's the structure that we can't see you know the that house reference where you can you know you we can see the wallpaper and the paint and the visible things, but we can't see what's underneath it um, we know that it's there it's it, the building wouldn't be standing if it did not have the structure and yet we often don't look at it we don't have cause to look at it until something goes wrong and so the idea of this is kind of holding our country up to the light it's like an x-ray of our country to see what's beneath it and I describe you know, caste is the bones and race is the skin. Uh, the skin is what we can see, and that's what's been used as a metric of hierarchy, the tool, the, the signifier, the cue, the signal of where one has been assigned in this caste system from the very beginning since, you know, before there was a United States. And it's the thing that we can see. It's the thing that we respond to. But what's underneath it is the infrastructure of why and how this uh, hierarchy was built to begin with.
0: Yeah, it's, it's as you point, it's a visible decoy for caste, race. And and you yeah. kind of, you talk about race and racism, in the, in the, and you don't uh, discredit it or say that it doesn't exist, because it does. But a lot of times we Absolutely. confuse the concepts of, of race and racism with caste and, and hierarchy.
1: Well, I think that it can be useful to see the difference between these two very real concepts. I mean, we're not dealing with generally the you know the classical open racism of our forefathers' era, and we need to acknowledge that there has been progress in terms of legislation the, the, you know, after the civil rights. Uh, movement, uh, we've had as many people will note, we have had an African American president so clearly there have been advances in our country um, at the same time we see this enduring shadow over us, Is why are these things continuing to happen, why is it that something that, you know, the, the metronome of names, brianna Taylor and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice before, uh, going back to Trayvon Martin and of course now with George Floyd, you know, why are these things continuing to happen. Why is there, there a wealth gap that's so extreme, not rich gap, but a wealth gap, mm-hmm. meaning access to uh, your one's resources that goes back to the redlining and the restrictive covenants that meant that African Americans of the current day are the descendants of people, children and grandchildren, of people who had been denied the American dream because they were excluded from the most basic part of the American dream, which is to own a home. They were excluded uh, legally and structurally from these things. So why are we still living with the after effects of this. And that's how uh, caste can help us understand that it's a structure underneath what we think we see. Yeah.
0: I mean, one of the things to understand caste, uh, the, the American hierarchy, is to understand how human history uh, has played out, especially uh, in, in most recent years. You have an anecdote in the book, which is amazing, about uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. just going to India, Explain that to us because a lot of what is happening in America has happened in other countries, including India.
1: Yeah, so Dr. Martin Luther King uh, made a, a journey uh, to, uh, to India. Of course, he had been inspired by the nonviolent movement uh, led by uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi. And he arrived and was treated like a visiting dignitary. Then he uh, traveled to the south uh, and he visited a school that had, uh, where the students were primarily what had formerly been known as untouchables, now known as Dalits. And so he, uh, when he arrived there, the, uh, the principal introduced him to the students and said, you know, students, I want to introduce to a fellow untouchable from the United States of America, and when Dr. King heard that language, he bristled he at it he, he was a bit peeved in fact, to hear that he he'd, been, he'd had dinner with the prime minister right. he'd been seen as a visiting dignitary, and so he did not see himself in, in the ways that they apparently were seeing him uh, as, as a fellow uh, a person who had also who was on the, on the bottom of the hierarchy. They recognized what perhaps many of us might not have known and so he, he bristled about it at first, and then he thought about it. He realized that uh, at that very moment, um, African Americans in the South were not permitted to vote, uh, that they did not have access to the, uh, you know, just public facilities, uh, all kinds of differences in terms of access to education. In fact, he was leading a movement to free the people, and he realized, he said to himself, I realize that I am an untouchable, and every black person in America is an untouchable. So Dr. Martin Luther King himself made the connection saw the connection as a result of the uh, Dalits themselves seeing themselves and their plight in his. He made the connection between that original caste system and ours.
0: Yeah, It's, it's amazing to, to hear that story. But the precursor to the Holocaust and what happened in Nazi Germany, there were studies that uh, looked at how the American caste system worked.
1: Well, I must say that I, I came to even uh, the only reason I ended up looking at Germany was after Charlottesville, where we saw the symbolism of both the Confederacy and of Nazi Germany merging in the symbol, symbolism and regalia of the protesters who were there to, uh, to protest the potential removal of the, the uh, statue of Robert E. Lee. And there we saw these two cultures merge, merging in the mindset and the, uh, the cries of the people who were, who were protesting. And so that was what led me to, to Germany to begin with. And there, I I just could not, I was stunned to discover that uh, there had been uh, connections far beyond, going far deeper than I ever would have imagined, uh, that German eugenicists actually uh, were in consultation with and in dialogue with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the Third Reich, that uh, American eugenicists were writing books that were big sellers in Germany and uh, popular among the Nazis in particular. Uh, Of course, the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate. They did not need anyone to teach them how to hate and yet they sent researchers to the United States to study the Jim Crow laws, to study the anti-miscegenation laws that were prohibiting people to marry across racial lines. Uh, they, they sent uh, researchers to study the ways that America, particularly in the South, had subjugated African Americans, the laws to segregate and keep them apart. Uh, and they went back and they dated those laws as they were forming what would ultimately become the, the Nuremberg Laws. It was just absolutely chilling and chilling shocking to,
0: to, to learn of this. And, and, and it you know, begs the question about how much we are paying attention to our history to understand that, because I think a lot of Americans who are uh, unwillingly in the caste system would, like us, would, they would bristle at that, that, that concept. They'd be shocked. They'd be surprised. They'd be horrified, embarrassed that Nazi Germany was looking at the American South uh, for better ways to isolate uh, the Jewish population in Germany.
1: I think that this is a reminder that we have so far to go yet to really truly know the full breadth and scope of our own country's history. I mean, after the Warmth of the Suns came out, one of the things that I would hear from people time and time again, regardless of their background or even people whose lives overlapped with the time period covered in the Warmth of the Suns, I would hear the same thing over and over, and that was, I had no idea. They would say, I had no idea these things happened in our country. I had no idea what was going on in the Jim Crow South. I had no idea even about how and why six million people fleeing the Jim Crow South. And so it means that we, we as a country still have a ways to go to really truly know our own country. If you think about it as an old house, the idea of of going in and learning uh, you know, the history of the house. I describe myself in some ways as a building inspector and in writing yeah, right. this book that I'm going in and looking at the systems and, looking and you know, going and looking at the foundation and then providing essentially a report, an x-ray of our country so that we can better know and understand how we got to where we are.
0: And that to me is a great uh, metaphor because So often you'll hear people say, well, it wasn't me. It wasn't my ancestors. I had nothing to do with uh, what happened with slavery or the Jim Crow laws in the South. As opposed to if if you're a homeowner, you know, maybe there's a a leak in the pipes or something like that. You rarely are in a position where you're like, well, I didn't cause the leak in the pipes. (laughs) Like you have (laughs) to fix it. You have to say, listen, this is what the house was, but I got to fix it now because I live in it.
1: Exactly. The thing about it is, if if, if if we've inherited this house, so we've got the house now, and we did not build the uneven pillars and joists or whatever it may be that's going on with whatever system. If you have an old house, you know that there's always something that's gonna have, that you have to deal with. You know that as soon as you fix one thing, there's something else that may come up. You know that when you are in an older house, uh, and you again, just as you said, I mean, you you don't even necessarily try to figure out now which owner before me did this or did that. We are the ones who are living in the house now, and regardless of what might have come before, it is our responsibility now to deal with the current state of the house we're in. Yeah.
0: I want to ask about religion, because religion plays a role in the American caste system as well. So talk about religion and, and how religion kind of manifests itself when, when we're talking about uh, hierarchy and castes.
1: Well, when in compiling uh, this uh, this history that I'm presenting here, I uh, brought together these eight pillars of caste, the eight characteristics that seemed to be uh, consistent among the different hierarchies that I was looking at. And the first one, the, the foundational one, you might say, is religion, or one might say uh, the laws of nature, the perceived mm-hmm. laws of nature, because the idea ha- was important to the people who were the crafters of a, of a hierarchy that there be a justification for what was ultimately going to be an unequal, high, you know, artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value. And so uh, if, if everyone was on board, if everyone felt that there was a, this uh, divine will that indicated or in some ways made it imperative that one group be on top and others be underneath them to serve them or to be enslaved by them, then that would make, make it easier to convince large groups of people that this was the just thing, this is actually the birthright. And so, you know, and I in our country, the, uh, the story of Noah and his three sons, more particularly Ham, who uh, came upon his father unclothed and was thus cursed, and his, his descendants were cursed to be servants of the others, that was the origin of uh, the justification for slavery, for enslavement, um, as the founders, as the colonists were forming what would ultimately become a, a caste system, and uh, an infrastructure of division, and uh, to justify the enslavement of the Africans that they were bringing over in order to build the country.
0: When you talk about slavery, that's to say, well, slavery was, the slave trade was everywhere. Um, This was something that, you know, uh, uh, it's not specific or unique to the to America, but but slavery that was American slavery was an American innovation. Talk about that.
1: This was a a kind of slavery that was that departed from the other kinds of slavery that we might that that we might see in ancient Greece and other parts of the of the world. This was one in which it was inherited and it was passed down through the mother, which is distinct from other ways of of inheriting anything. Usually, inheritance before then was through the father, but because it was through the mother, that meant that any children that that woman might have, that African woman might have, whether by uh, another person who was enslaved or by the person who claimed to own her that those children would thus be enslaved, which would mean that there was an economic incentive to actually impregnate the women, uh, African women, uh, at the hands of of the enslaver or or other people, and this was passed down through generations. So it was 12 generations of people. Imagine how many greats you have to add to the word grandparent to imagine how long it went on, and that there was no escape. You know, in in modern-day slavery, which often we refer to, if a person manages to escape, then they are escaping to a world that recognizes that slavery is wrong and they will be, you know, that that the enslaver will then be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But during American slavery, if a person escaped, they were escaping to a world that would return them to slavery, Mm -hmm. that slavery was legal, and they would be the ones punished for trying to free themselves. There are many, 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 many differences, but that's one of the most profound ones.
0: Isabel, when when we talk about uh that, because it, you you automatically have an extension to the Jim Crow laws where even and, and and you understand a little bit more about caste and hierarchy when when we talk about the Great Migration, uh you know, Southern blacks moving to the north uh for a better opportunity to be met with the same uh discrimination, the same racism, everything that was happening in the South was in the North as well. That plays to this idea that there's this hierarchy, there's this caste, that it's not necessarily uh, one state or one plantation—it's countrywide, uh, and, and in some cases, global. But at the end of the day, the the question I have is just: when you see that, it makes us better understand what we mean by uh, white privilege, because a lot of people may not understand themselves being white people saying, "Well, I don't, I don't have, I'm not, I don't understand," but this idea that they want to be at the top of this hierarchy and this caste by whatever means necessary.
1: Well, part of it has to do with understanding what caste is. I mean, caste essentially is an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society that determines standing and respect, benefits of doubt, access to resources or lack thereof, assumptions of competence, intelligence, and even beauty through no fault or action of one's own. So you do not ask to be born to the top or the bottom. You're born into it. uh, And and yet, without you even wanting to, there are entitlements that come to you without you even trying. This is just the way that it is. And the goal here is to allow Allow us to be able to see underneath what is made invisible because we have accustomed to this, that we think that this is this is the way that it always is. And we cannot often see what's underneath because it has been, it's not talked about, we don't recognize it, but you can't fix what you can't see. You can't understand what you don't know. And this is a way to help us to know, help us to be able to see so that, that maybe we can see ourselves through a different lens and then maybe be able to find a new framework in order to heal.
0: What do we need to do as a country to transcend this system? You talk about radical empathy.
1: I talk about radical empathy because this is a 400 year old system, a 400 year old social order that, that has defied so many efforts to defeat it. You know, the civil rights legislation of the 1860s and 70s and then the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. So there have been efforts legally in, you know, at, at tremendous and important and necessary legal uh, uh, changes to, to uh, forbid the very things that still seem to be with us. You know, it's very clear that despite that, very important legislative accomplishments that need to be strengthened. In fact, there is something underneath it that seems to still persist because it's being passed down through the generations. It's being, it's sort of, it's like the groundwater that we drink. It's everywhere. The, the assumptions and, and recognition of who is expected to be where in a particular place, yeah. who is supposed to be the CEO in the corner suite, who would be in the mail room, who would be the secretaries, who would be the janitors. Those are the kinds of things that we saw also with covid 19, where the people who were on the front lines were more likely to be associated with the subordinated caste, of what I would call a subordinated caste, and so these are things that we still live with today. The goal would then to be able to try to transcend these artificial boundaries, recognize, first of all, that they're artificial and arbitrary. Once we can see that they're artificial and arbitrary, then we can begin to transcend them and recognize that we all have so much more in common than we've been led to believe, that we truly, you know, want the same things. People want the same thing for their children, they want to, you know, to be uh, successful in their career, they want to live out their their talents and and their gifts while they, uh, during their time on this planet, and if we could begin to see that we have so much more in common, that we are actually one species, and that these divisions are arbitrary, and have been so destructive to everyone, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in this book is the ways in which this is destructive for all of us, in ways that we might not otherwise see, in hopes that we can... Or, you know, somehow transcend this for the betterment of ourselves and our, our society and, and for the species and the planet.
0: Isabel Wilkerson, Pulitzer Prize winner, author of the new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, also the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration, which I also recommend checking out. Isabel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and talk today and appreciate your work. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And that's today's Reset. Want to hear more conversations like this? Go to wbez.org slash reset to check out our complete archive and make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right back here tomorrow.